Hey, Cole. This week's movie may worry you a little bit when I start talking about the inappropriate relationship between a 17-year-old boy and his aunt, but don't worry. It turns out in the end, she's not his aunt at all. She's his mother. Come on, Oedipus. Welcome to Second to Die, a horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. And thanks for tuning in again. This week, we are, well, this week I am talking about a movie. I'm going back into some of the earlier movies because I had done some more modern ones lately. And they were fine. But I have a a real love of sort of, well, really for a lot of 80s horror just because, well, just because... So I'm going back into doing an 80s one. This is a 1981 film. It is called Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. Oh. Oh, boy. I, it's on Shutter for any person who's interested, either regular Shutter or through the Amazon. Also, people have asked me before if I think Shutter is worth it. I'll just say this. I watch a lot of horror movies, so Shutter is worth it for me. It may not be worth it for you, but... I think you can do a free trial on it. It does have a lot of stuff on it. Anyways, Shutter does not endorse me. I don't endorse it. It's fine. But if you want to. <laughs> but if you want to give us some of that Shutter money, we're open to it. <laughs> I'm shuddering with anticipation. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. The movie, like I said, came out in 1981. It was directed by William Asher. F- funny enough, uh, though William Asher is credited as the director, the film's opening sequence was shot by a man named Michael Miller. But the film's investor fired Miller after watching that scene, basically telling him that his pacing was too slow, and then they just replaced him with Asher. But they still kept the shitty opening. Yeah, they kept his scene. I thought that was kind of weird. And no one likes a shitty opening. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Cut that. Nope. Anyways, so I will only say, I only mentioned once about the name of this movie, Butcher, Baker, Nightmare Movie. Nightmare. Sorry. Oh man, that's a that's a what do they call that? It's Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. Freudian slip. Yeah, it's not sexual though. It's just so okay. I liked this movie, so I'm not gonna harp about the bad things. But this movie title is one of the bad things. It is terrible. Also, the movie has nothing to do with butchers, bakers, nightmares, or anything. I don't know why it's called that, and I could not figure out why it's called that. It's a play on butcher the baker and the candlestick maker. Yes, there are none of those things. There are also not three people involved. Like, there's not three characters. No, there's only two. It's basically the aunt and the kid. And I mean, the kid has a girlfriend and there's little like sub characters, but it's not like there's three like evil characters or something. I'm just being antagonistic. Okay. I don't have a lot of blurb stuff about this. The actual film blurb is... With her nephew Billy about to graduate, the obsessive Aunt Cheryl will go to murderous lengths to keep him all to herself. So, that's cool. Cheryl is played by Susan Tyrrell, and Billy is played by Jimmy McNoll. Interesting things about this. I'll talk about some of the more interesting things at the end of it, but what's kind of interesting about this that some people have noted is this film has an inversion of the final girl. In that it's a final boy as the protagonist, Billy, and his girlfriend, Julia, instead takes on the role of the helpful boyfriend, but as a helpful girlfriend. And so it's been kind of credited as that. Why they call him a final boy instead of a final girl, he's like injured by the main baddie. And he's the one that like fights the bad person off and stuff like that. It's very like, honestly, it's very like he becomes Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween situation. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like... This has nothing to do with horror, but it's kind of like how in The Fault in Our Stars, you have the Manic Pixie Dream boy instead of the Manic Pixie Dream girl. Like, you just kind of, like, flip it onto a male. Yeah. Or a non-binary person. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that was that common, especially in the 80s. They also mentioned the person who was kind of writing this mentioned that he's attractive. And to some people, he might be. Um, okay, so the film has also been noted as an early portrayal of a homosexual male character as a positive figure in a role where the screenplay does not sensationalize the gay character's sexuality. He just happens to be gay. 
And it does come into the plot of the book, but not in any sort of a bad way or in any sort of like a radical way. Plot of the movie. Plot of the movie. Yeah. I That wasn't like an unnecessary correction. My brain was just like, oh, there's a book? No. There's no books. Well, no. Okay. That's all the little bits I have about it. Actually, also, so when I uh, chose this movie, I did not know that it had any like gayness to it. I was pleasantly surprised that it did. At first... It's just real homophobic. And I was like, why am I watching this? But then it actually got a lot better. So I was like, oh, okay, this is, I don't know, gay power. Okay, cool. Anyways, I'll talk a little bit more about that in my final thoughts, but I do not have enough time to ramble right now because I'm going to talk about a lot of this movie because it's real crazy. I'm so excited. <laughs> okay. So the opening sequence shot by the other director. Oh, he didn't even get a credit anyway. So I'm just going to credit him again. Michael Miller shot this great, fantastic opening sequence. It is with Billy, the main character, but he's a baby. And his parents are going on a trip and leaving him with Aunt Cheryl. So then the character, the parents are driving. And then all of a sudden they notice that the brakes aren't working and they can't stop. And they end up rear-ending a logging truck. And the log goes like through the windshield. and Final like, Destination style. Yeah. But this is obviously way before Final Destination. So I remember, I think at one point I may have even said that like, or I've seen a lot of memes that are like Final Destination made everyone scared of logging trucks. This movie did it first. So now we're going to say Butcher, Baker, Nightmare Maker made everyone afraid of logging trucks. Okay. Final Destination can have tanning beds. Wait, no, they can't because there was that one movie. Killer Killer Workout. (laughs) Killer Workout did tanning beds. Okay. Anyways. And then after the car gets in, I don't know why I'm laughing about this. After they get impaled by the log, the car tumbles off a cliff and the mother dies too. So they're dead. Fast forward. Billy is turning 17 the next day. And so it starts on the eve of his 17th birthday and then quickly goes, he becomes 17. So we'll just say he's 17. Anyways, the first day it goes to Aunt Cheryl and she like wakes up. She goes into Billy's room to wake him up. He's sleeping because she's got custody of him now. She opens his door. She goes in. She opens his wallet, finds a condom, and gives this, like, disapproving look that he has a condom in his wallet. She then goes over to him while he's sleeping, crouches over him, and starts purring in his ear and making soft meowing noises like a kitten while lightly scratching his back and telling him to wake up. Classic Cheryl. (laughs) <laughs> classic cheryl oh like you do i wouldn't even wake you up like that that's too creepy and we're married i also wake up aggressively well yeah but i mean could you imagine somebody purring into your ear to wake you up no i've yet to find someone stupid enough to do that even the cat doesn't do that the cat just screams in our faces or from the other side of the room <laughs> So anyways, Billy is not alarmed by this, and it leads me to believe that this happens quite often, and it's just a normal thing to him, which makes me a little concerned, but we'll get to that. I am a mandated reporter. Billy, are you okay? (laughs) So then they're downstairs, and Billy's talking about wanting to bring this girl, Julia, over to dinner, because he's been kind of hanging out with her and stuff, and Aunt Cheryl's, like, not into that, and she's like... No, don't worry. I'll be your date tomorrow night for dinner. And Billy is like, whatever makes you happy, Aunt Cheryl. And Aunt Cheryl's like, you make me happy, Billy. And I'm like, there are like some serious boundary issues in this relationship right now. Oh, boy. This is upsetting. Yep. We also learned that Billy's talking about going off to college. He plays basketball. And he's talking about like how his coach thinks that he may get a basketball scholarship. And, and uh, this is just funny for this line. Aunt Cheryl is, doesn't want him to go because she's obsessed with him. And is like, college is for rich kids and people with brains. I was like, it's kind of a read. Also not true. Rude. I knew a lot of people in college who were neither rich nor smart. Anyway. There's room for everyone. Okay, so then they, there's a TV repair guy over. His name is Phil Brody. So he comes over and Aunt Cheryl is like, throwing herself at him and he's like no thank you i'm gonna leave and she's like please please i need a man i'll do anything and then he's like okay so then it really like the way i remember the scene is he's like okay unzips his pants and is like get to work on it and then apparently anything did not include a blowjob typical straight woman 
because she's like, no, not that. I'm not doing that, blah, blah, blah. And she goes insane and stabs him. But here's the real kicker. That guy is actually gay. So I'm not sure. Maybe I misinterpreted him unzipping his pants. But that's what seemed to happen. That's weird. Yes. So Billy comes home and finds Aunt Cheryl covered in blood with the TV guy. And she was like, I had to kill him because he tried to rape me. And then the cops come and it's the 80s. So, of course, they're like, we don't believe you. And then they start thinking that Billy did it. Well, that could be the 80s. That could be now. Well, yeah, but especially in the 80s. Believe women. Anyway. And, well, I guess in this case, it really was not true. But that is beside the point. Yes, completely beside the point. So then the detective, this is, this is a really dumb part. The detective finds a, a ring from Phil, the dead guy, and it has the like an engraving, and it basically says 2PB from TM. And the detective is like, the gym teacher at the school's name is Tom Landers. This must be a gay ring given to Phil Brody by Tom Landers. And I'm like, that is a fucking jump to me. Wait, TM or TL? Uh oh, sorry, TL. Okay, sorry. Yeah, sorry, TL. My I have a typo in my notes. No problem. I was like, well, that is a really big jump because we just changed an initial there. Yeah, that is a really big um leap to make. So then he confronts the gym teacher about it, and the gym teacher is like, doesn't deny it, and is like, yes. And then the detective is like, you may want to resign before you find yourself lynched, and. So that happens. That tracks. But so, okay, I'll just point out right now. The whole point of the detective's character in this is that he's like a huge, like homophobic dickbag. And at first when I was watching it, I was like, is this just how they're going to like treat gay people in this movie? And like he, I don't like using words, but I'm going to use words. He basically uses the word fag a lot in it, which you know how I feel about it. I do not care for that word. Just don't. And so I was like, am I going to have to put up with this movie like and him calling people fags like all the time? But it is really seen as like a negative trait. And he's portrayed as this almost like subvillain for being so homophobic. So I was on board with that. But the whole point of that, I think even being in kind of the script, is that he doesn't buy the whole rape story because he realizes that that guy that got killed was gay. So, of course, he wouldn't try to rape a woman, even though rape is not about sex. It's about power. So that's also failed logic. But anyways... So then he goes to Billy and he's like, I think you killed him because you were like his like lover or something like something off the wall, like doesn't make any sense. But he's like accusing Billy of being gay. He thinks everybody is gay. And he's like, Billy, I think you killed him because you were gay lovers with them. That's not what we do, by the way. We don't just kill people. Also, he wasn't fucking a dude. He was fucking his mom. <laughs> well, so they don't actually have sex. Billy's not really into Cheryl like Cheryl is into Billy. Billy just, I think, thinks it's, like, kind of a normal relationship. Oh, boy. Weirdly enough, there's actually been some people that wrote articles on Billy's sexuality in this movie. He never has sex with his girlfriend. They talk about it for, like, half a moment. They start to at one point, but they basically kind of almost leave Billy's sexuality ambiguous. He does stand up for the gym teacher, though, and is completely unfazed by the fact that he's gay and actually, like, is kind of upset when the gym teacher does end up quitting, which he does because of the whole scandal. So, that's it's a good thing. Anyways, back to Aunt Cheryl. We learn that she's got a secret room in the house, and she has a shrine built to some guy. His name is Chuck Strang. And there's, like, pictures of him and candles, and then she turns and, like, oh, right, there's also his skeleton in that room. Classic Cheryl. Classic Cheryl. And But the skeleton doesn't have a head. I don't know why that, well, that is relevant later, but I don't, I didn't know at the time why that was relevant. So Aunt Cheryl and Billy are eating dinner together. Cheryl's drinking milk, which makes sense because she is a psychopath. Then she goes on a rant about homosexuals being sick people and how they're like perverted and demented. She's like super Jesus. She's got all these like crosses and shit in her room. And Billy is basically like, no, they're not. You're a homophobic bitch. He's cool. And he storms out. She's super Jesus-y, but she's super into her son. What did she think the relationship between Mary and Jesus was? Well, it's interesting because part of what people say about this is just like how it inverts the um, final girl into a final boy. They talk about how it inverts social norms. 
in which heterosexual desire in this movie is kind of oppressive and sinister because Cheryl has all these like sexual desires towards her son. And she basically talks about how homosexuals are very, very sick people as she's like, I'll get to it in a bit, murdering a bunch of people, grabbing and fondling her actual son and also a bunch of other heinous behaviors. So they kind of talk about how that happens. It's actually kind of an interesting thing that this movie does. I'm into it. So Aunt Cheryl basically tells Billy she's going to go on a trip. So Billy's like, cool, I can have my girlfriend over. But Cheryl does not go on a trip. She comes over. They're like in bed. And Aunt Cheryl like flips the absolute fuck out and tells Billy to, quote, get that slut out of here. And then Billy has so then Billy has his big basketball game. Because there's these scouts from the University of Denver, which is apparently where he wants to go, that are going to come watch it. Cheryl does not want him to go to the University of Denver. So what's a girl to do? Well, of course, you drug a glass of milk and give it to your 17-year-old nephew son so that he drinks it and goes to his game with, like, drugs in his system. So he does that. And the game does not go well. Billy ends up passing out and has to go home. Classic Cheryl. Classic Cheryl. Also, at this point in the movie, Cheryl Polk goes kind of crazy and decides to cut her own hair and cuts it into this, like, really short, crazy look. Not shaved. She doesn't pull, like, a Britney, but it's short. And I'll, I'll point out, too, the actress who plays Cheryl is, like, brilliantly magnificent in this. She plays, like, crazy so well. Like, it's it's so well done. So, we still got a little bit to get through with this. Really? Wow. Okay. <laughs> still going through. But I'll, it'll be fast, though. So, Julia basically goes to the house because she wants to, like, apologize to Cheryl. Billy sneaks into Cheryl's room and starts going through her stuff. And she finds this box with some letters from Cheryl's old boyfriend, Chuck Strang. Also finds a birth certificate that lists Cheryl as his mother, not as his aunt. So, in this kind of, like, big twist, like, one of the twists is she basically Cheryl comes clean and is like, yes, I'm your mother. Chuck Strang is your dad. He was going to leave me because he didn't love me, but I stopped him. And your parent, like my sister and her husband adopted you instead, but then I wanted you back. So I had to fix that too. Stopped him. Yeah. Stopped him, which somehow led to his skeleton in her closet, a literal skeleton in the closet. Yeah. Well, yes. And he has not found that, but... Julia does because when Julia's o- Julia's over there and Cheryl basically hits her over the head with a meat cleaver and then she she comes to in the skeleton room and she sees the skeleton and then she also looks over and Chuck Strang's head is preserved like embalmed in a jar. Classic Cheryl. Yes. Cheryl then Billy is kind of realizing that something is not going on okay. And so then Cheryl goes to the room with another glass of drugged milk and literally is like trying to is like holding him down, like trying to force him to drink this milk, like cradling his head and dumping it into his mouth. And he's like trying not to drink it. And it's like going all over the place. It's like a really weird fucking scene. But then also spoiled milk. Oh, yeah. So she's like dumping it on him. And then she like gives him like a small kiss on his mouth after she dumps all the milk on him. And then licks the milk off of his neck is this before or after he finds out that she's his mom this is after oh oh boy but i mean he she would be his aunt otherwise well yeah no i'm not i'm just like that it's it is an extra step okay it's like how you have your cousins and your first cousins yeah (laughs) yeah there is there's also been people who have kind of said that the milk is this whole metaphorical thing because it's like the mother giving, like, tainted milk to the kid. I'm not trying to get that deep into it. It's a fucking horror movie, people. Come on. Okay. So, meanwhile, the neighbor lady, Marjorie, has come over because she's hearing all sorts of things, and neighbors are nosy. So she's, like, kind of there, but then she realizes how fucked up things are, so then she's kind of like, I'm going to leave. So she tries to leave, but Cheryl kind of realizes that Margie had overheard the whole conversation about being his mom and also about Chuck Strang, like, trying to leave, but not being able to. So Cheryl goes outside with a machete and kills Margie. Then Julia is trying to leave the house. She breaks a window and it starts to run. Cheryl like basically chases her down and hits 
they, it's, it's kind of a longer scene, not like that great, but ultimately Cheryl hits Julia over the head with a rock that you don't necessarily think she's dead, but she kind of passes out. Cheryl goes back to the house. Billy's trying to call somebody for help. And Cheryl's like, who are you talking to? Is it your girlfriend? And it's like, well, obviously not. You just fucking hit his girlfriend over the head with a rock. But then she's like, I'm your girlfriend now. No, ma'am. No, <laughs> no. Bad. You are his mother. Mm. Nothing like a mother's love. No, stop. Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. So then Cheryl starts to attack Billy because she's, I don't know. He's like, I don't want to be your boyfriend. And then Billy ultimately grabs a letter opener and stabs Cheryl in the chest. Then Billy goes to the phone and instead of calling 911, which would make sense, he instead calls the basketball coach and is like, I just killed my mother. But surprise, she's not dead because this is a horror movie and he's a final boy. And so the killer has to come back for another scare. Of course. So she leaps forward, pulls the letter opener out of her boob and starts like slashing at Billy and cutting him. She cuts him across a couple parts of him. He then falls back grabs a fire poker, and stabs her in the stomach with a fire poker. She does go down then. The coach, in the meantime, does show up and is like, WTF mate? But he's like helping Billy because Billy's bleeding, so he's like cleaning Billy up. Somebody at some point had called the police, maybe Julia, because Julia shows up with the police, and everything is like looking crazy, and the homophobic detective is basically accusing the coach of killing everybody, and Julia's like, No, it was Cheryl. I literally saw her. And the detective is like, shut up. And Julia's like, no, like, I literally saw her kill everyone. And the detective is like, shut up. And so, like, he has the other policemen take her out. And then, like, he pulls out, the detective pulls out a gun and is going to, like, kill Coach Landers because he basically is gay. And the detective is like, I'm just going to shoot you. So, anyways, there's a scuffle. Billy ends up picking, the detective drops the gun. Billy picks it up and is, like, pointing at the detective and is like, leave the coach alone. And the detective is like, you're not going to shoot me. You're not going to shoot me. And then Billy fucking shoots him. (laughs) Good for Billy. (laughs) I love when people are like, you're not going to shoot me. And then it's like, oh, really? Bang. (laughs) Yeah. So basically, Billy is like, you know, traumatized. He shoots somebody. Okay. Yes, because that is the thing that traumatized him. Well, so yeah. Okay. So then... Julia comes back in, I think, with the detective because they hear the gunshot. And Billy is looking, he, I mean, he's looking like real in shock at this point. And she runs and like cradles Billy's head. The coach is fine. He's like there too. And the final shot of the movie is literally like Billy just kind of like staring off for a minute and her like holding him. And then a tear runs down his eye. And then it's a still shot. And then the credits roll. <laughs> that's amazing (laughs) it's like that poor kid but then in case you were wondering this movie doesn't want to leave any loose ends because you might be thinking he just shot a detective this isn't going to work out well for him well we're treated to a nice little epilogue in the form of scrolling text that's very short that tells us that billy did actually go to trial for the murder of the detective but that he was acquitted on the grounds of temporary insanity and that him and julia are now both attending the university of denver together aww (laughs) A happy ending full of resounding childhood trauma. Yeah, he's going to need some real therapy when that's over. He is going to put a therapist's children through college. Yes. So that's that movie. It was honestly really good. These are my final thoughts. I've already said basically the way that Susan Terrell portrays Aunt Cheryl is phenomenal. Like, it's the best form of crazy. There's like parts where she's like, walking around the house like muttering to herself and you can't hear anything but you can see her kind of muttering um okay if i do that (laughs) um yeah well they say what do they say that talking to yourself is a sign of intelligence but answering yourself is a sign of insanity (laughs) the look on your face Uh (laughs) uh-oh so okay so I've kind of I've, I've I've kind of inserted a lot of my final thoughts into talking about this movie, but all in all, it was really surprisingly good. I didn't expect to like it as much as I did, but I actually don't have much bad to say about it. It was really well. It was like everything I wanted in a movie. Well acted, super bad shit crazy, 
and ultimately the gays save the day and the homophobic dickbag detective is killed. So I don't have too many criticisms of it. Sounds like a good time to me. It's really fun. I did also see something that this has become like a small cult classic. Like there are people that will like do maybe midnight showings of this or something. I'd never heard of this. And I mean, I've heard of most things. I'm on so many different like groups and forums and stuff. That surprised me. But more people need to be doing showings of this because it has that almost like trying to think like I do know that the actress who played Aunt Cheryl said that she got a lot of inspiration from the character and whatever happened to baby Jane. And it has that kind of craziness to it. And so I'm not sure why it's not a more popular movie. Part of me wonders if it has something to do with that terrible title it has. Or with the fact that it portrays gays in a positive light. And therefore probably wasn't very popular at the time. True. But I'm going to say for all the people listening to this, you should watch this movie. It's actually good. Like I would watch it again. It has that quality that it's just highly entertaining. You know what it almost reminded me of a little bit was Sleepaway Camp. Because when you watch Sleepaway Camp, it's so ridiculous and it's got so stylized that it's kind of entertaining and you could watch it again, despite the crazy ending, which we won't talk about right now. But the movie itself, you're just like watching it and you're like, when you watch that, you're kind of like, oh my God, this is so like, I don't know. It's hard to describe. But I know you've seen it because we watched it together. So yeah. Anyways, that's it. Watch this movie, Butcher, Baker, Nightmare Maker. It's on Shudder. It's 100% worth it. That's that. Now, tell me what you're going to talk about. All right, Peaches. I am bringing you yet another vintage horror. Today is the 1983 classic Little Brother by John McNeil. And believe it or not, this one isn't about incest or pedophilia, which is a refreshing change. Uh, But that's also the only thing that's refreshing about it. So let's go ahead and dive in. All right, I'm ready. Uh, The cover's pretty simple. Digital font. Child sitting in front of a glowing screen. I feel like we know pretty firmly off the bat what we're getting into, but sure, let's do the blurb anyway. With growing concern, parents all over America watch as their children sit entranced before the glowing screen of the bright orange possums the latest in home computer systems. Is it only a harmless pastime, they wonder, or something more? When Elaine reluctantly calls on her ex-husband, Toby Sorensen, she is desperate to find a way to wean her son off of his possum computer. Obviously, Jay is addicted. Could possum be using the microchip to send some kind of message to America's children? How much does the CIA really know, and why aren't they telling? Reports of child violence and suicide when a possum is taken away grow out of control as Sorensen searches desperately for a solution. Will he be able to rescue his own son from the computer? This already sounds terrible to me. I'm not going to lie. It's pretty bad. Um, So, before I go too far into this, quick content warning. This book does have, as you hear in the blurb, Suicide and attempted suicide in it. Just giving people a heads up. So this is my first foray into tech horror, which is kind of like this really interesting emergence in the time when all of these vintage horror books were coming out because it's also when we're getting the tech boom and it kind of all kind of went hand in hand. Lots of our tech is going to brainwash us and kill us and enslave us. And Little Brother is coming in here for the latter of the group. So our story starts with the dumpster fire of a human who is Toby Sorensen, our marvelous main character. He is the head of security at a tech company where a microchip has been stolen. And it seems really irrelevant at first. There's actually a part in my notes where I'm like, I really hope this has a point because it rambles. And actually, once it's tied in, I was still annoyed because the first, like, large chunk of the book is dedicated to, like, the investigation of this missing microchip. When was this written again? 1983. Mm. Anyway, moving on to the more interesting bits. Toby sees a news program at one point where a 10-year-old killed his parents and attempted to kill his sister when his computer was taken away. And this sets us up for our upcoming premise. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen and non-binary folks, that's called foreshadowing. 
Toby receives a call from his ex-wife, Elaine. Here's the thing about Elaine. So Toby left her to be with another woman five years ago. And then that other woman left him shortly thereafter. Like I said, trash. Anyway, Elaine wants Toby to come talk to Jay, their son, of a similar age to the boy who killed his parents. Because Jay found his best friend after he'd committed suicide and has basically been holed up in his room ever since. And she is understandably concerned. Yeah, I mean, I would say therapist is probably more the way to go. But, you know. He just needs a strong father figure in his life. Sure. Don't we all? (laughs) There's too many jokes there for me to make. (laughs) I make a lot of jokes about the fact that my father worked a lot when I was a child and I married someone 10 years older than me. Anyway, upon his arrival, Toby treats us to a lovely tirade of toxicity. First of all, he hates how fussy Jay's room is. It's a bunch of, a real boy's room should be like this, and a real boy's room should be like that. And the gender binary is a social construct, gentle listener. Anyway, basically, like, the room is too clean and smells nice. And he's like, there should be sports equipment and dirty clothes. It should smell in here. It should smell like a boy. And I'm like, that's disgusting. That's gross, sir. I mean, not smelling, whatever. If you want to be a little bit messy, that's fine. But, like, getting upset at your son because he keeps his room clean? Get over yourself, kid. He's also literally personally offended that Jay looks more like his mother. He genuinely is, like, thinks to himself something along the lines of, is this some sort of revenge on me for leaving? (laughs) Jeez, dude. Not everything is about you. But he's a white man, so it is. Oh, my God. I know. Seriously. It also sounds like there's some serious toxic masculinity going on here. It's so bad. I hate him so much. I was so annoyed. He was also clearly expecting that when he walked in, Elaine would be like, oh, my God, you're back. Rip off her clothes. Put it in me. And was very disappointed when she wasn't like, I need your dick inside of me right fucking now. Hmm. Honestly, this chapter is the true horror of the book. And Elaine is just trying to live her life. She's running a lovely souvenir shop because this randomly takes place in Salem, Massachusetts. And in that souvenir shop, the author makes sure to tell us that she sells dirty frogs. Dirty frogs? They're frogs. They're little like frog figurines wearing clothes. And under their clothes, the frogs have anatomically correct, extremely large human genitalia. (laughs) (laughs) For some reason, I was literally thinking, like, dirty frogs. No, no. <laughs> she just calls them dirty frogs. Well, there's there's a scene where Toby is talking to her at the shop, and he makes some joke about how she's just selling stupid tchotchkes, and she's like, well, I also have dirty frogs. That sounds nice. And she's like, come see. And it's like a fishing frog in a pair of overalls, and she pulls down the overalls so his giant human dick falls out. It was weird. Running a souvenir shop would be fun, though. Remember we went to that souvenir shop in Oberammergau? And that was like, it was so quaint and cute. And adorable. It would be nice. Anyway, meanwhile, as all of this is happening, we have two CIA agents. Their names are Ames and Ralph. I actually think I'm using a last name and a first name there. Oops. Oh, well. And they're interrogating a former Soviet informant named Valentine. And the only real relevance here is that Valentine claims to have seen the officer from a gulag that he had been imprisoned at, and it appears that the man hasn't aged a day. (laughs) Again, I was like, okay, where's the point? I don't know. It, mm, It has a point, but it's not clear for a very long time, and it feels very superfluous at first. We keep coming back to the agent's but they really only factor in with any sort of importance much later in the book. <laughs> I'm also, to be honest with you, the word gulag makes me laugh because <laughs> you know how my mother is like very particular about everything in the world. Yes. Whenever she is like in a place, especially like a hotel, she's like notorious for switching hotels and stuff like that. When she visited in Germany, she switched hotels. Although in her defense, the place that they ended up going to was phenomenal. 
but she always refers to places she doesn't like as like gulags if she hasn't if she has an issue with them so she'll like refer to her hotels as gulags and stuff it's funny anyways continue (laughs) all right so back to the family jay is playing on his computer as the blurb tells us it's like a gaming system called a possum it's bright orange which is awful it has like little well, floppy disk cartridges and stuff that you put in to play the games. I remember those. It's so <laughs> precious. Uh, I mean, even I remember cartridges, Nintendo 64. Like, Well, but did you use floppy disks? No. Yeah, I didn't think so. We had floppy disks like in my middle school. I remember like having to like put those into the computer to do like our typing classes and stuff. Oh, boy. All right. Well, mm-hmm. moving on from that history lesson. It's all like trivia games. Like, even the ones that are, like, building games and whatnot, you answer questions to progress. This is important for the bullshit explanation later. So Toby tries to talk to Jay, and you can tell that Jay, he's supposed to be the rebellious child and has something going on. He's a troubled child. He's so edgy. He calls his parents by their first names, which, take a moment, just a moment, to picture the look that my mother would have on her face if I ever called her by her first name. Even now, as a 30-year-old man. Weirdly enough, my two older brothers sometimes, actually quite often, refer to our parents by their first names. I don't know why. It is weird. Especially my older brother. Yes. Well, we're talking about my mother. Yeah. <laughs> she, well, I don't necessarily think my mother likes it, but your mother would probably, I don't know. I can't even imagine. It, it it just wouldn't be pretty. Anyway, uh, Jay has no real interest in anything but his computer. So skipping through some of the boring parts, essentially Toby tries to become a part of Jay's life by participating when it comes to the possum. So he takes him to go and get a game, and he takes him to a con where they meet the creator of the possum. It's fine. It has, like, mild plot point relevance. But really, this leads to a lot of cliche descriptions of addiction. Like, they get there to get the game, and there's a line, and Jay's like, we should have gotten here earlier. Like, practically scratching at his arm. Like, I hope they still have some. I hope I'm going to be able to get one. We should have gotten here earlier. I was just getting annoyed. Yeah. I'll rant at the end. The head of the company, who is Mr. Hendricks, is a little strange, but, like, nothing too crazy. He likes it very cold also technically relevant, and also his colleague, whose name is Mr. Stevens, is also strange and also likes things cold. And we were told earlier by Valentine that the guard from the Gulag, whose name was Vlasov, also liked it really cold. So, oh my goodness, I wonder if there's a connection. (laughs) So Toby starts to suspect that Mr. Stevens, who was present as at the presentation of the computer chip that was stolen from the company he works at, was the one who stole the chip. Just okay. fine. It's whatever. Also in this, Toby goes into Jay's room at night and takes the possum back to the guest room where he's staying. And this is like the one wholesome thing that Toby does because... It really is just him trying to learn how to play one of the games so that he can play with Jay and Bond. And it's actually really sweet. But Jay flies into a rage and, like, comes into the room screaming and cursing and attacking him. Okay. Because he's addicted to the possum. (laughs) Sorry. I don't know why that made me laugh, but I did. It's funny. Not long after, Jay skips school to play the possum at home, so Toby and Elaine decide to take it from him, and that night he tries to kill himself. He swallows a bottle of pills. Yikes. That escalated. Yep. He survives, but Toby is, understandably, instantly suspicious. And the doctor says something about a rash of young boys, because girls can't play video games, attempting suicide, and Jay starts to put two and two together. And here's where things escalate. Okay. He breaks into the house of Jay's friend, and lo and behold, there's a possum in the basement where his parents had clearly hidden it when they took it from him before he killed himself. Making some leaps here. Mm Mm-hmm. 
He tries to break into the possum facilities, but he is nabbed by two people. And you think it's security, but surprise, it's Ames and Ralph. Our CIA agents from earlier. Right. I honestly can't even remember what exactly they were doing. Like why they were keeping an eye on the possum facilities. This book is about the equivalent of Uncle Callum from Dairy Girls. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gentle listener, if you have not watched Dairy Girls, first of all, pause this podcast, binge (laughs) the whole thing. It's fucking hilarious. Second of all, Uncle Callum is a recurring minor character who basically talks nonstop in this like monotone voice and nothing he says is relevant, important or interesting at all. It's a really good show. And that's what reading this book was like. And so stuff got lost in my mind because I was just kind of lulled into a stupor where I was (laughs) scanning over the pages. (laughs) So skipping through parts of this, basically Toby tells them his theory that everything's connected, the kids committing suicide, the possum, all of that. And they end up bringing in Ralph's son who has a possum at home so they can observe him. And they catch a couple of points where Ralph's son zones out. And when they replay the tapes, they realize that there's flashes of dot patterns, which is part of the technology that the stolen microchip can do. And it's relaying subliminal messages. So some of these are advertisements about new games coming out, and others are weird messages about one day. Like they watch it. The the Toby and the agents are watching the video, and the words one day pop in their head. Okay. So things wrap up pretty quickly and very loosely at this point. The CIA guys mysteriously stop looking for Vlasov. Like, eh, they just stop. Um, Ralph tries to take away his son's possum, and so his son sets the house on fire with everyone inside. That seems a bit extreme. Uh, It's a lot. I think they make it out, but again, at this point, I was lulled into a stupor, and I just, like, I honestly don't remember. I didn't write it in my notes. I technically know what chapter it is, but I really couldn't be bothered to reread that chapter to find out if Ralph and his wife get out, because they don't even factor into the rest of the story. Thanks. So, it's whatever. Possum randomly re-releases all of their games, asking players to trade in the old ones, and Toby's like... I bet you these won't make kids kill themselves. Like he just <laughs> makes that leap that like possum reprogrammed the games so that if it was taken away, they wouldn't attack people or themselves. And Toby starts sitting with Jay all day and watching him play. And then, Oh boy. And then in our final scene, Valentine shows up at Toby's. Remember Valentine? Yeah, the Russian informant. Yeah, the defected Soviet guy. Well, he shows up and he tells the whole story because, you see, Vlasov once told him that he was born near the Tunguska River in Russia on June 30th, 1908. Are you familiar with the Tunguska event, Peaches? No. I will tell you about it. On the morning of June 30th, 1908, there was a massive explosion near the Tunguska River in Russia that flattened trees in an area of about 830 square miles. It's pretty big. According to Wikipedia, it is generally attributed to an airburst from a meteoroid, which I don't necessarily know exactly what that means because I have a liberal arts degree. (laughs) So clearly, Vlasov couldn't have been born there, right? Wrong. Valentine theorizes that the event was actually a UFO crash. Okay. And Vlasov is one of the survivors, later becoming Mr. Stevens. Vlasov became a guard at a gulag because it gave him a reason to ask people tons of questions about humanity and learn more about humans and the planet Earth. He later worked with Hendrix to create the possum, which, through its continuous trivia games, collects the knowledge for them. And Valentine is like, we have to find Vlasov. But in a twist that no one saw coming and no one really cared about, Toby lies and tells him that Vlasov slash Stevens is dead to throw him off the trail because by watching Jay play the possum, Toby too has become hypnotized. The end. Wait, so so then people just keep playing the game? Yep. 
but they toned down the programming that made the game addictive. That was the whole like re-release because since the game was used to gather information, there was programming in there to keep kids playing, to keep gathering information, but they overshot a little bit. Everyone makes mistakes. So they had to tone it back so that kids stopped killing people. So then at the end, it's just that these aliens are still using this game to collect information. Yes. And one day is one day aliens are coming. And that's it. I don't feel like that's the reveal the author thought it was. I literally have written in my script that I'm pretty sure that this twist of him like lying about Vlasov being dead was supposed to be this huge like gag worthy moment. But I literally had to reread it because I was like, wait, what happened? That doesn't sound that interesting to me. It was just so monotonously delivered. I don't know. It was awful. I'm not going to lie, as I'm sure you can guess. I was not impressed with this one. Um, Surprisingly enough, I'm giving it two. (laughs) For some odd reason, I like the idea of aliens making a video game that's a trivia game to gather information. I don't really know why. It just makes me giggle, and I like it. So I'm giving it two out of five frog figurines with giant human dicks. So like I said, the premise, I think it had a lot more potential. So that's why it has it two, but I do have some issues. So first of all is the tone. Like I said, it is honestly just boring the whole way through. I've read some books for this podcast that were like an 11 of intensity from start to finish, but this was the opposite. It was Catherine McPhee without the Mick. <laughs> My second issue is the heavy-handed warning of how technology is ruining today's youth, which <laughs> I just don't have time for. There's even conversations about how kids just don't read anymore. And then there's Toby's whole, like, a real boy's room rant. It all felt very after-school special. Here's the thing about screen time. Should parents monitor it? Probably. Should they freak out? Absolutely not. I watched literal hours of TV every single day when I was a kid. And I'm talking like five or six hours of TV per day. And I also played a lot of video games. I even set up video games next to the TV so I could play video games while watching TV. And you have always played video games a lot. Yes. Yes, I have. And you play video games a large portion of your day most days. But both of us are also functional, successful adults. And also, as far as the, like, kids don't read, I read all the fucking time. Despite the fact that I refused to read for several years when I was a kid. You're very successful in your field. Both of us have shit mental health, but that has nothing to do with (laughs) screen time. All I'm saying is, if your child gets really into gaming for a while, so long as they are still able to function in other aspects of their life, I wouldn't worry about it. But that's just me. Rant over. I was just annoyed by the after-school special. Yeah. The video games keep me from doing crime and smoking crack. I don't think that's what would be happening, (laughs) babe. How do you know? I like to think I know you relatively well, considering marriage true i'm well it's gonna say the one time i don't even remember smoked crack (laughs) no what when i the times i can remember they didn't have the internet to be honest i did do some pretty productive things but i also wasn't didn't have as nearly of like a demanding job as i do now so i don't think that that's related anyway so would you die if you were in little brother Honestly, probably not. I just gave you my whole rant about how I think it's fine if people go through a gaming phase. You game all the time, and I'm not like, babe, you need to stop gaming. You need to get off the computer and come do this. I'm pretty live and let live. Like, So I don't think I would take a child's possum away and then proceed to get murdered. (laughs) Would you die in... Butcher the Baker, the Nightmare Maker? Is that what it was called? It's just called Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. Okay, whatever. Close enough. Would I die in that? Hmm. Tough to say. 
I guess it depends what my role would be. Probably not, though. It's not the kind of movie where, like, the killer was just killing, like, super random people. It, Although some of them were. But I don't see... She generally kills people that are threats to her relationship with her and her son, and I'm not sure that I would be that person. So, yeah, I don't think so. Though a lot of people, more people died in it. Not a lot of people, like three, but more people died in it than I was expecting. Like the nosy neighbor, the detective. Actually, there's another policeman who also gets killed, but it's beside the point. So, anyways, I don't think I necessarily would be. There's, It's just not enough random killing, not like like some of the like monster movies or something where survival is the issue this is literally just she was going insane and killing all the people around her and i would hopefully just not be in that situation in this case incest is the issue or wanting incest at least they don't they don't actually go so far as to have it happen but there's a lot of weird licking and purring oh i totally forgot to speaking of purring um when she kills the neighbor the neighbor is leaving the house and trying to go away she distracts the neighbor by purring in the bushes like she did before and the neighbor like turns around and is like what the hell is that and then she slices her with a machete all right so <laughs> i would die <laughs> because i'd be like what a kitty cat a kitty cat that needs a home it's purring yeah i forgot that part. <laughs> i really like cats Anyway, thank you so much for listening. If you would like to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Goodreads at Second to Die Pod. You can also email us questions, comments, concerns, or your thoughts at secondtodiepod at gmail.com. And honestly, go see this movie and let me know what you think about it. Because I was so impressed. Like, I was so impressed by a movie that I'd never even heard of. And I want you to be too. And don't read a little brother. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.